Hello everyone, I'm your host Ted Ryan. And I'm Clayton Terry. And you're listening to the fourth episode of our podcast, You Have to Watch This. A podcast where we recommend films to each other and we talk about them the following week. Last week, we did Sci-Fi Dystopian. And yeah, I think it's my turn to flip the penny. So we'll go ahead and do that. The one of us who can actually flip a coin. Tails. Tails is Ted. Ted, which movie would you like to start with? Uh, I think I would like to talk about Children of Men first. Tell me about this film. You recommended this to me. I did. This is our second entry in uh, Alfonso Cuaron's filmography. This came out in 2006. This follows Clive Owen's character, uh, Theo, in this dystopian 2027 world, I believe. Um, He started out as a political activist, but now he's kind of cynical about the world because for the last 20, no, for the last 18 years, not a single baby has been born. Um, People don't know what this cause of infertility is, but it leads to basically every major country in the world falling apart except for England. So the film has a lot to say about the rights of immigrants and foreign policy and gender roles, which leaves me feeling like the movie is just as relevant now as it was 13 years ago. Um, It's one of my favorites of all time, but Ted, what did you think of it? Uh, So we went out to the Little Theater to go and see a showing of this. It was my first time seeing it, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Though, again, I wasn't sold on the film from the get-go, but it it did take a while. I would say maybe halfway through the first act, I was hooked, I guess. Mm -hmm. But the first... 20 minutes or so I didn't really enjoy. Yeah, this film is um, interesting. It's definitely, the more I think about it, the more I enjoy it. Um, It's a very bleak film. It's very, like we said, dystopian, very apocalyptic. But not in the way that you normally see. Um, When you you hear those terms, you think kind of Mad Max, kind of you know, I guess more post-apocalyptic. But in this, the apocalypse is slowly encroaching and humanity is hopeless to stop its its coming. Mm-hmm. And this kind of, the, this bleak, dour tone permeates every single aspect of the film. And I really enjoyed it. Some of it, they kind of spell out what has happened to you through exposition but where the film really shines is its nonverbal world building and exposition mm-hmm. in the fact that you can really come to all the conclusions of the world on your own just by paying attention to the film. Yeah. You know, and this this infertility affects all walks of life and you see it in every aspect of the society that they live in. It's inescapable, yet people still continue carrying through their normal lives in a modern Britain as if, not not to say ignorance, but pretending as if nothing is happening. Yeah. And in doing so, they've allowed for a quasi-possibly fascist state to take over in this emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Upon second viewing, um, I was definitely made more aware of some of its exposition dumps. Um, it has a couple that are 
not the best, but once you get into the world, it's really fleshed out. And I think the way that's best accomplished is Kiran's directing style, which we talked about in Roma. And I ascribed it to like a child whose eyes kind of wander. There's like the shot of Theo either walking home from work or walking to work. And he passes like cages filled with immigrants. Um, and the camera stops following Theo and it kind of goes through the cages and then you see a bulldozer and then it pans up and you see people just throwing their trash out the window of their condos. Um, and shots like that are very prominent towards the end. But I think that directing style is one of the reasons this is such a remarkable movie. Absolutely. It's, there is a really strong visual style that I think beautiful in its ugliness is how I want to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that was the, the, the first thing that blew me away about this film was the, the production design and the budget or whatever I can imagine the budget to. There is, this is a huge epic film yeah. with large sets and tons of extras in costume and, and it's a very muddy film and it's very, Again, very bleak in terms of the story, but also bleak in terms of the visuals presented. Mm -hmm. And the film uses, like, touches of color so sparingly that it reinforces that kind of apocalyptic vibe. Um, I mentioned earlier that the first 20 minutes I didn't really care for. I think the moment that I was invested in the film was when Theo visited his cousin in the Ark of the Arts Yes. Where you have the, yeah. the Court of the Crimson King song playing and he's driven through this kind of uh, walled noble estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see how the, the upper class is living in this apocalypse. Uh, and then you see him kind of wandering the halls of the Ark of the Arts where people are preserving famous works of art for whatever comes after humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just really impressive visuals and really grand scope in these scenes and that i i love films where it's like you're stepping into a fully realized world that has already existed and you're only now just stepping into for some reason the like destruction of art or the kind of selfish collection of art makes me so much so much more angry than like murder or something in films and i don't know why but it's just like they they address this directly the idea that this one lone rich man is going to be the only one to enjoy this art for the next 20 30 years and then no one's gonna enjoy it and i found that to be one of the most frustrating parts (laughs) about um (laughs) this idea of humans only getting one generation left you're not alone in thinking that, um, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is, in a way, an ongoing debate in the art history community. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of things we see in museums, especially archaeology museums, comes from, you know, the 1800s to early 1900s, you know, where, you know, after colonialism, but kind of the scramble for Africa and the scramble for, you know, archaeological goods. And you see a lot of famous works of art and stuff appropriated from cultures. Mm -hmm. 
And now in this 21st century world, we have a question of should this art be returned to its original place? Mm-hmm. Um, however, I would argue that in the state of this world, that's not really an option. Because through some more heavy-handed dialogue, we see, or heavy, heavy-handed uh, world building, uh, we see that the rest of the world is in flames or in radioactive ruins. Yeah. So, yes, in a way, the gated wealthy community does have this to themselves, but it might be lost to time forever if they didn't do that. Yeah. But I mean, humanity's going to be lost to time forever soon. So I, I see the argument you're making, but um, it's hard. And it's just one of the many really difficult questions I find that this movie poses. It's pro- probably one of the minor ones, to be honest. It's, it's, it, we are talking about it way more than the film actually <laughs> does. It's like a two-minute long scene, yeah. tops. I think it's important to both of us. For, um, <laughs> so that's why. But we can move on. The next scene that is just remarkable. If you know anything about this movie, you probably have seen this scene, and that's where they're driving, um, the long take where they're driving in the car, and then they get ambushed. Ted, I know you had said that you had seen this scene before, but how did it work for you in the context of the movie? I I, I did see the scene ahead of time. Um, and with the added context, um, I don't know if I would say I was more invested but I think I was more intrigued to see how the scene would end and yeah. what would happen right after it. Um, and I didn't really care for Julianne Moore's character. Um, we should say we're going to get into spoilers now. So, um, Sadly, I guess. Not really sadly. I didn't really care for I her. I liked her. Uh, she is killed in this scene. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's kind of the the... I, not not so much the kickoff to the adventure that the the or the the quest that the heroes go on, but it's definitely the point of no return. Definitely the uh, the gatekeeper or the guardian. Uh, you know, we, we we've talked about how epic this film is in terms of its scope. Um, this scene does a great job in using the one take or the long shot or however you want to call it. For in its best form, where in which you have an epic story and you have an epic scene you want to tell, and through clever camera movement and editing and special effects, you have this long, prolonged scene that accomplishes an emotion that you wouldn't get if it was edited in a typical yeah. action scene. Definitely. I think that's one of the strongest aspects of Alfonso Curran. We talked about it in Roma. It comes up again here, and I know you especially don't think long take automatically means you have a good shot, but it just leaves me speechless, some of the long takes that they have in this movie. And we'll get to some other ones, but I think that one is probably my favorite long take. Uh, Since we're already in spoilers, um, later on in the film, there is a very lengthy long take. uh, That is a, a prolonged battle uh, through uh, an urban city street and an apartment complex. And it's just when you think it's going to end, it keeps going and going. And it just, the amount of people involved and uh, breathtaking. And I just, I'm wondering, like, how long did this take to pull off? It's, I know. it's great to see filmmakers at the top of their game and the top of their craft being able to pull off something like that. It's like the Olympics for filmmaking. <laughs> Honestly. And, I want to come back to that because that last like 30 minutes is 
incredible, but I don't want to skip over a lot of um, right. the stuff we see in Act 2. So after the car scene, after the death of Julianne Moore's character, um, they go to this safe house, quote-unquote, and Theo finds out that the girl he's tasked with um, bringing across bringing to the human project is actually pregnant. And so this is the first pregnancy in over 18 years. How did that revelation and plot device in general kind of work for you? (laughs) Again, I knew that was going to happen going in. Oh, yeah, because the horrible trailers we watched. (laughs) We we saw Groundhog Day at the Little Theater. Also, I just want to clarify. I said I saw Mandy in 35mm. I meant to say Misery. I apologize to the Little Theater. I noticed that when we were recording, but I was like, I'm not going to correct him. <laughs> I felt really bad while listening to episode three, so I just I had to get it off my chest. I can move on in my life. Um, I'm going to edit it out. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so I knew going into it that she was going to be carrying the first baby in a generation, uh, what surprised me, however, is how I really came to love that character. Yes. Uh, I'm not familiar with the actress, but she gives a really endearing performance that I guess I would describe as almost like a little sister in a way. You know, like um, she's very personable, very friendly. She realizes the seriousness of the burden she's carrying um, and what it means to everyone uh, and, you know, she gives a really strong, impassioned performance as the, the Virgin the, Mary, almost the new Mary of the next generation of humanity. Mm-hmm. She didn't ask for this burden. You know what I mean? Like from what we know from her character, she'd probably prefer not to have had this. Um, mm-hmm. once she gets more later into the pregnancy, you see that she does have this attachment to her baby, but yeah, I think. The exploration of that character is super interesting. I think my favorite part about this film is that both her and the protagonist, Theo, are normal people that have been thrust into this adventure. Definitely. And they have no choice but to go on to it. And, you know, they may be scared or afraid, but their resolve never falters. Mm -hmm. And they, they are committed to... They're not committed to saving humanity, but to saving and helping each other. Yeah. You know, it's their friendship that mm-hmm. gets them through and uh, in a way saves humanity. And they're also like really smart and competent characters. Like right. when Theo realizes that um, Shiwatel Ila Gilia Force character was responsible for the death of Julian Moore's character um, and they decide to leave this safe house. Um, he pulls out, I don't know what it is, but the battery, something connected to the battery of the car to just like slow them down a little bit. And it's like, this character has had to do that before. As Um, well as the car keys in the ignition. Yeah. I've never seen that in a film. And that felt like a video game sequence to me. I was on the second time watching. I was like, this almost feels like a video game. Are you familiar with The Last of Us? No, but, um... Ethan's played through it, and he said that this movie does it better. <laughs> but I, I was making that connection from what I have seen of The Last of Us. Definitely. It's that whole sequence is... I wasn't crazy about The Last of Us, but it is a, it is a pretty good game. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, and that whole sequence is filmed uh, with the character Theo crouch walking yeah. <laughs> uh, behind uh, waist-high cover uh, and interacting with things one at a time. So it's... Very much Last of Us-esque for people who've played that game. 
Definitely. So then we move past that scene. Um, do we want to talk about the sequence with Michael Caine's character or him at all? We should talk about him. In my opinion, he's the weakest part of this film. Um, he is kind of the kooky friend of Theo. He's a retired political cartoonist who is a marijuana enthusiast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's kind of the comic relief in the first act, first two acts of the film. Mm-hmm. Though I found him very grating and I didn't really enjoy him at all. I felt the same way my first watch. Um, and then I came to like his character a lot more on the second watch. Um, I wonder if knowing that he inevitably sacrifices himself puts the kind of silly humor at the beginning more in perspective of who this guy really is. Like, he's like a class clown, but he also really deeply cares about Theo. And that deep level of caring and understanding isn't something we see in this world outside of maybe like our three main characters. So I I really appreciated that aspect of his um, character and performance. I'm maybe my opinion will change on a rewatch. Yeah, his he I did enjoy when he kind of he a, a pivotal moment where right after Theo escapes with the girl Key Key, um, they go to a safe house to hide from the Human Project. No, they hide from um, the uprising. The uprising. I don't know if that's what their name technically it's is, but a um, not a terrorist organ, sort of a terrorist organized organization. Uh, and they 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 come to Michael Caine's house to hide and rest and refuel on supplies, basically. And um, the terrorists catch up to them, and he kind of stalls for time to allow them a window of opportunity to escape, and uh, that did get some emotion out of me and i think that maybe not redeemed the character but i definitely appreciated the character more after that definitely so skipping ahead a little bit they eventually make it to this refugee camp where it's on the coast so julian moore's character told them the human project will send a boat to pick them up just off this coast so they sneak in to the refugee project and in the process of doing that, Key goes into labor. Her water breaks. And the idea of going through this refugee camp while in labor <laughs> was truly horrific. <laughs> but that tension builds and builds and builds up to uh, another long take of Theo delivering Key's baby. And <laughs> man, this scene and then another scene that we'll talk about in a couple minutes both just build so much emotion and then do an incredible job of just like release you know what i mean this film has some of the best comic relief that i've ever seen in a movie yeah because it's used so sparingly so that when it is used it just provides that wonderful sense of relief yeah i mean i agree but i'm not even talking about comedic relief necessarily more just like you know something bad's coming, and this dread that washes over you. Things don't necessarily work out. Well, in the two examples I'm thinking of, they do. But just the reaching of that climax <laughs> emotionally, and then kind of the come down from that. I Both times, both of these scenes made me cry, and oh, it's so good. The other scene that I can remember that had a similar effect like that was right after they escape from the terrorist hideout. 
uh, they get into a car that uh, doesn't turn yes, on. Yes, and you can see him in the background being chased. Yes, so Theo is basically running and pushing a car down a hill while the antagonists are running <laughs> up, up to him and catching up to him. Yeah. And first off, it's like you never see a car fail to start in a... It's sort of an action film, kind of. Trope, yeah. Yeah, like... I never knew that could be so compelling. Yeah. Uh, as well as funny in a strange way at the same time. It's like... It's almost like nervous laughter. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, geez. Oh, you know, it's... You don't know what's going to happen because you've never seen anything like that in film. Yeah. And they can't just shoot at the car because they don't want to kill the first person to be pregnant in 18 years. So, like, if they were just shooting at the car, you know our main character's not going to get killed by a straight bullet. But... When they're chasing and the one guy speeds up and gets to the point where his yeah. gun's like against the head and he's like, I have a clear shot. Can I shoot him? And then he luckily uh, kicks him out with the door. I, f- I feel like there are other ways to frame these scenes that wouldn't be as compelling. But when you have someone as talented and as on the top of their game as Alfonso Curran, like you were saying, just every scene is just filled with so much emotion and effort and is so intentional i just i love it so going past the birth scene we then move into kind of this refugee camp gets overtaken by luke and some of the other members of this quote-unquote uprising and we see key and theo as well as another refugee that they befriended navigate this war scene basically um ted i know you're not crazy about war movies but how did this, the directing and the cinematography combined with the emotions of the story and characters, how did that all uh, kind of mesh for you? Uh, I am not a fan of war films in the way that they glorify violence okay. and the soldier in participation of that violence. Um, this, I did not have that feeling with this film because... The, our protagonists are very much civilian bystanders, Definitely. bystanders in this uh, war zone. Um, and I really enjoyed that because it felt like a new perspective on violence. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many scenes where they have to mingle their way through crowds of militant soldiers, you know, um, mm-hmm. and or avoid being noticed. The film does show a lot of civilian casualties in that violence, but I think it could have gone a step further. Further than the shot of, um, the basically shot from Roma, where that the main characters run down a street and then the camera holds on like a mother holding her dying son. I wanted to see more of that. Yeah. That's what I responded to the most, and it felt like at times where we were just following the characters... It almost felt like it was sanitizing the violence. You know, there's a shot where... There's there's a several times where there's gunfire being shot at in every direction. And Theo runs out and takes cover behind another thing. It happened, I think, one too many times where it kind of annoyed me. And I was like... You're kind of at the limits of my uh, suspension of disbelief, you know? And... That long take where he's, you know, that that long stretch of road, I felt it was very clean. Like, there's rubble and debris everywhere, but there's no bodies anywhere. The 
city was overtaken within, I want to say, 10 to 30 minutes of them leaving the kind of hostel where Key gives birth. So maybe ascribe it to that, that this is all playing out in real time. Um, but I do kind of see what you're saying. I mean, our main character does get shot at some point in this sequence. And we right. see we see someone else get shot because blood splatters on the camera and they leave it for a majority of this long take, which, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, that wasn't done intentionally, but Alfonso Cuaron wanted to keep it in. And um, Emmanuel Lebowski, how do you say his name? The non-Roger Deegan cinematographer. You're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> Emmanuel Lebowski. Besky. Even when I'm looking at it, I can't say it. Um, he's incredible. And the two of them together, man, it's just oh, so good. But um, this kind of war scene naturally builds into Theo reuniting with Key, who is taken by um, Luke and the other members of this uprising, and her baby. And as, she's, as he's leading her out of this war hotel... Um, <laughs> this like weird condo hotel thing where um the two sides are fighting the government and then this uprising um her baby starts crying and everyone including the soldiers including the men in the uprising including just the innocent civilians that are trapped in this building just kind of stop for a minute because it's been almost 20 years since they've heard the cry of a child and this is one of the most moving things I've ever seen committed to film or in any story. This is by far the best scene of the film. Um, really breathtaking. Uh, just to see the the variety of reactions that go on. Um, you see people praying mm-hmm. uh, for the two, um, touching the baby's feet, um, reaching out to them, um, caressing them as they pass. Um, and the soldiers are in utter disbelief. Some of them get down and pray. And, you know, it's like the whole city goes quiet. And it's almost as if, like, the whole planet for one moment is still. Mm-hmm. And for a film that is so bleak and loud and explosive to have this moment of like pure silence and stillness like it it feels like the whole film has built to this one scene it reminds not only all these characters in the movie but also it also reminds the audience kind of what it means to be human right not this war that we've been watching but I mean, kind of as Miriam is quoted as saying in the movie, kind of like the world with children's voices. And I don't even know if we could ever do it justice by talking about it with words. <laughs> you have to watch this. You have to. Hey! <laughs> um, <laughs> we gotta do that uh, with every... No, we don't. <laughs> I will. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> um, no, but... Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. And the whole movie kind of culminates to this point, And then it ends with Theo and Key rowing out to just outside the coast. We don't know exactly what happens, but we know that a ship that has the same name that Julie 
said. Is it the brother? The friendship or something. The friendship? Is it really called the friendship? No, it's definitely not called that. It's called the tomorrow, I think. The tomorrow, okay. The friendship? Where did I get that from? <laughs> um, Every children's story ever? Yeah, so... It's a friendship. <laughs> the ending isn't exactly vague, but it doesn't lay it all out for you. The title crawl that appears right before the credits is accompanied by the sound of children laughing. Yeah. And I think that says everything that needs to be said, that True. life in this world goes on. Um, it works out for humanity. They figure out a solution. We don't. We didn't need to know how this crisis happened, and I don't need to know how it ends, yeah. only that it did end. And humanity was able to live on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good point. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take the optimist say and say that we get a nice clean ending. <laughs> it's 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 a very heartwarming ending for a very like bleak, dark movie. So yeah, very much the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I feel like at least I could probably we both could talk about this movie for another half hour hour. But um, any closing thoughts? Check it out. Uh, you have to watch this. It's uh, <laughs> it's. Don't watch any trailers or anything for it. Uh, no posters either. <laughs> I mean, I guess you've been listening to the spoiler section, but uh, it means a lot to me that you like this movie because I genuinely believe this is one of the greatest movies of the century. Arguably, the greatest movie of the two thousands. Oh, um, okay. I feel like other people may have favorites, but when it comes down to just pure filmmaking. This movie's really hard to top, at least for me. It was a pleasure to share it with you, and it was a spectacle to see again, and I enjoyed talking about it. Try and see it in a theater, uh, if you can, or a large screen, um, and with a good sound system, because there's some great audio um, work in this film, specifically um, the action scenes with uh, gunfire, you know, going all around you. You know, it really puts you in that scene with the heroes yeah and we talked about this afterwards but it it feels i at least feel like it's a 30 minute movie like it it already is pretty short but it feels very short to me i was surprised when it ended i was kind of oh i didn't i thought there was more i actually thought it was shorter and i think it could have been a little bit longer definitely it it didn't need to be gluttonous like so many times you see movies with these kind of deep themes and uh powerhouses behind and in front of the camera and you see them kind of go over long and this film was like nope this is what we wanted to show you i think the length works for it but one of my criticisms of the film is that which you've mentioned was that some of the world building is really on the nose and obvious so maybe one or two more scenes where you take that verbal exposition and incorporate it visually Mm -hmm. i think that could have helped but that's so minor. It's so minor. Like <laughs> I, I'm not going to lose sleep over that criticism. I think it's time to move on to the movie you recommended for me, Ted. What was that? Yes. So in the vein of sci-fi dystopian films, I thought no, uh, the best way to do it would be to go back to the original, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Fritz Lang's 1927 German film, Metropolis. Uh, this is a film uh, that follows the story of Freder Frederson, son of John Frederson, 
love the names in this film. It's it's just fun. Yeah. Uh, and it basically follows the story of a class struggle within the city of Metropolis, where in which um, the the poor and downtrodden um, seek to rise up against their uh, capitalist industrialist uh, oppressors. Uh, and it's a story of love and romance and class struggle and violence and man and his and his relationship with the machine. What were your thoughts on this film? Overall, I'd say that I enjoyed the experience of watching this. <laughs> Don't give me that look. That's a very legal way of saying <laughs> yeah. that you didn't enjoy it. Very diplomatic. <laughs> um, I mean... It's a task, this movie. I feel like it is two and a half hours long, and that is... This film's missing footage, so it's probably closer to two hours and 45 minutes (laughs) if we had the full scale of this movie. Um, It's hard for me to criticize it because its influence is so obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also of another era that I don't have enough experience with. Of silent films... I've only seen a handful, and I can only think of one that I, like, genuinely enjoyed. <laughs> Do you mind uh, uh, sharing? Yeah, it's um, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Okay. Yeah, it, I watched it when I should have been doing work at a place of employment that will remain <laughs> uh, unnamed. Um, Dairy Queen? I, I've never looked at Dairy Queen. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that movie is... It's funny, obviously, because it's Charlie Chaplin, but it also has a really good heart, and I feel like both of those things were still conveyed in modern times. Charlie Chaplin basically adopts a kid. Are you modern we're here times to talk about, We're here to talk about Metropolis. You not, asked me about it. I asked you about one film, not his entire filmography. <laughs> I didn't... Okay, fine. We'll stop it there. Tell me about Metropolis. <laughs> well, I watched this film... As part of a class called From the Machine Aesthetic to the Cyborg Age. And it looked at art and society and culture um, as it progressed uh, from the late 1800s to modern times. Um, Specifically, the industrialization of the world and how artists reacted to it. Um, This film comes out of a period of, like extreme political turmoil um specifically the weimar republic in germany during the great depression from american perspectives was terrible but it was significantly worse like a hundred times over in um germany after world war one i think one of the reasons why i love this film is that it really provides that lens into the struggles that people were experiencing much like other films that we've discussed, I really enjoy the the epic scope of this film. Yeah. Everything about this film is big. You know, the 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 city that the you know, the the metropolis itself is really a character onto itself. Um yeah. with massive cityscapes that you know, you can't even see the people. Um and in daytime it's this brilliant gleaming city, you know, with the Tower of Babel in the background. But at night, it becomes this leeching monster that crushes workers under its feet. It's it's such, in a way, I feel as if this is a this is a horror film, you know, where 
all the the fears and doubts of the German people are expressed in this film. And it it very much doesn't aim to be realistic. It's very operatic, but I enjoy that. I that heightened reality works for me personally. It feels like you're watching a ballet almost. That's what I gathered. Like mm-hmm. I'm watching a theatrical pl- production, but even more so one where they don't use language to express their emotions. And I thought that was really engaging. Which makes sense. You know, you mentioned that it's from a different era. Most actors of this period, I believe, were from stage plays. So it makes sense to see that carried through. And, I mean, you've talked about it already, but the biggest part of this movie, at least for me, is the visual effects. Um, Those shots of the city are breathtaking. And I love... Like, I don't really know how they made Thanos, but I know they used a computer. And that's, like, the first step. I have no idea how they pulled off some of this stuff. I have seen some behind-the-scenes photos of model makers, you know, painting window panes and stuff like that. That is so cool. And the models they use in this film are huge. And I know what you're talking about. Um, I love visual effects in 3D digital ones, but... This, this film is amazing in its effects. Like, mm-hmm. and even like, this is from 1927. This looks good from like films that came like way afterwards. Like, I can't believe this film came from 1927. It's amazing. How good does the machine man look? And then the transformation scene from, um, Maria to the machine man. Oh my god, that was just incredible. Did they do they do some of the effects by like actually drawing on the film strips? Because they did that, right? I think it's just a matter of fading the film in terms of the fade. There's a fade, and then I assume like the electricity. That they probably had a layer of celluloid that they drew over. Okay, that's how it's usually done. Yeah, like maybe like traditional animation over projected over the film footage that's how i imagine it went down but okay. it's again it's fascinating to think about it looks incredible mm-hmm. not even in like the patronizing way that you so often hear where it's like the 1880s look so nice considering they were um whatever <laughs> it's like no that actually looks good because that exists in a phys- physical space right. and i can tell you know what i mean mm-hmm. um with both these films the practical effects are really fantastic definitely alfonso curan is incredible at combining cgi with um practical but we're talking about metropolis (laughs) um it's okay because i said it that time yeah you also asked me last time (laughs) bitch (laughs) speaking of the machine man or the machine woman um one thing I love about the operatic larger-than-life style in this film is that there is no subtlety at all in this <laughs> yeah. film. It is in your face with its message and its themes, and I appreciate that. It's it's You get the message, you get the story, you understand it, you're never confused. Um, and my favorite part of this film, one of my favorite parts, is the set design. Yes. Specifically, the evil scientist, um, uh, Dr. Rotwing, or Rotwang, who is um, hired by the protagonist's uh, father, who's the, the mayor or king of the city. 
to make this thing, uh, this machine woman. Um, in the background of his dinky old house, you have an upside-down pentagram with the numbers 666 <laughs> written over, like, the machine woman. And it's just so refreshing to see it so simple, you know? Yeah, I don't have a lot of movies from this era to compare it to, but it chooses to be more direct with those kind of things and allows itself to be more experimental in other ways. Do you know what I Absolutely. mean? Absolutely, yes. It, it works for me. I, I, I was captivated throughout the whole thing. And I will, I will agree with you, this is a difficult film for modern audiences. Yeah. Well, I was watching it, and an hour and 15 minutes in, it says, end of prelude, and I audibly, alone in my dorm, went, end of prelude? Oh my god. And, yeah, I watched this in two sittings, but, um, it was worth it. <laughs> however, however you do it, I, yeah. I guess it's a theater intermission. Yeah, I mean, they did literally have intermissions. So, I guess that works. I, I, I'm okay with it, I guess. I've, I've come to terms with it. <laughs> You've accepted it. I've accepted it. Just a couple other scenes that I kind of wanted to talk about. The dancing scene, um, after Bridget Helms' character, Maria, is transformed into the machine woman, was so beautifully creepy in a way. Right. The, like, I don't know what FPS this movie was at, but it was not the one we're used to of 24. So her movements look mm-hmm. so much more inhuman. In addition to that, uh, the lighting in the film does a great job of showing, like, which is the good and which is the evil Maria. Yeah. Like, there's always, like, much harsher shadows and much darker blacks on her face when she's the evil uh, machine duplicate. Um, You know, again, very operatic performances, but, you know, the way she does those two characters is great. It's still compelling. Like, I'm still invested in her character specifically and then her relationship with our protagonist. Mm-hmm. Fredder Frederson. Fredder Frederson. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then the flood scene with all the children escaping after their parents were, um, after their parents followed the false prophet of the machine woman. That was so grandiose and epic that... Like, the, movies just aren't made like that anymore. Exactly. It's 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 a feast for the eyes to see how much love and effort is put into this film. I, when, I'm, when you mention that, I'm just imagining the scene. There's a scene in the film where there's a giant machine uh, and it, it breaks down. And the, the city floods as a result. And the one of the protagonists, uh, Maria, is lifting children out of a flooding basement with like a... What was it, like a giant ladder or something? Yeah, something like that. The, just the movement of the waves and the people within the frame is so engrossing. And it's just that tactile physical nature that is so impressive for a film of this time. Definitely. And you can see how it went on to influence other epics of the Huge amount of extras, giant sets, wide shots of our characters coming down a staircase. Right. Kind of frame within a frame. The directing of this movie, man, it's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, especially given that this was this came before a bunch of filmmakers that basically created what is taught in film classes, you know what I mean? Um, that's what's so exciting about watching these older directors is seeing them pave the way and experiment and 
being able to see like, okay, that worked and was copied ever since. And then that <laughs> was really weird and no one did that yeah. again. But it's still cool to see the creation of this new art form. And the the director's mindset doesn't exist, if that makes sense. Like, you can't subvert tropes if tropes haven't been established exactly. yet. You know, it's a blank slate of this new art form. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the meta story of this film of like how some of it was lost and then within the last like 15 years um the remaining scenes or at least the majority of them were found in buenos aires is so cool that this media it doesn't feel like it's old enough to have artifacts like that artifacts was the word i was going to say it's there's a a magical quality to the film based on the nature of it being kind of a lost film that's been restored. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's this fascinating film that was ahead of its time, that wasn't particularly appreciated by general audiences, but had grown in uh, the time since it was released. And I can't really... It's hard for me to put my love for this film into words. It's hard to talk about, and much like... Roma, it demands to be experienced. <laughs> I stand by that statement still. <laughs> um, and I, I don't entirely disagree. I think we covered everything that I wanted to discuss. Um, this is a great film that is a true piece of Western history. Definitely. I can't think of any greater film that is an encapsulation of the times and the struggles that people were experiencing in this era. This this really puts you back there and really, it is a fantastical reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. And it is breathtaking. Definitely. I mean, I feel like this film has such remarkable directing and visual effects and practical effects um, as well as its influence on sci-fi as well as just the culture in general and films to come after it that anyone who loves films or loves sci-fi has to see this i don't think this is a movie after watching that you're gonna revisit once a year um no i wouldn't say so but it's a classic piece of artwork that anyone who appreciates the media the medium and where it was kind of conceived should be sure to check out i think even though it may not be palatable to modern audiences i think there's some something for everyone in this film to appreciate yeah because there it, it doesn't just accomplish one thing there's a lot going on yeah it's definitely long enough to tick a lot of boxes <laughs> um but no i think I think this is another week where we mostly enjoyed yeah. each other's picks, which is nice. Ted, we decided our next genre would be horror because, you know, we've had a lot of heavy topics, so we figured we would go with something <laughs> light with horror. Um, what am I going to be watching next week? Well, I have three films Oh no, that I all equally would like to discuss, um, two more than uh, one other. I don't want me to pick, so just eliminate the one you don't want to talk about. Okay. Bring it down to two. I'll bring it down to two. So, uh, the two films I would like to discuss that you choose from would be 
1986 remake of The Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum, uh, as well as Eraserhead by David Lynch. Shit, you're not making this easy. These are both films that Eraserhead is not not a typical horror film, but it is terrifying. And The Fly is a wonderful horror film. These are both really near and dear to my heart. Okay, you're not... I was hoping this would be easier, but... Oh, man, I think I want to go with The Fly. Okay. Boom. Perfect. All right, so you're going to be watching The Fly. The original is also really good, but that's another story. Um, (laughs) What film am I going to be watching? So I joke that we have been watching a lot of heavier movies. Even though it is the category of horror, I wanted to pick one that's more fun and action-based. So I went with a film that I've mentioned to you before. The South Korean zombie movie, Train to Busan. Okay. So this is available on Netflix, and I would argue it is, it's at least my favorite zombie movie of all time. Um, I've heard good things about it. It's uh, it's really well made, and it's really fun, so. All right, I'll, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a fan of zombie films. Yeah. Uh, they can't help but have fun in a zombie film. And so. I, I think The Fly is going to be a really fun one to discuss as well. These are both fun horror films. Awesome. I almost went with a different one that isn't fun. but um, Was what? it... Was it uh... No. Well, it was, but we're not going to say it right now. Okay. <laughs> I was prepared uh, to write it down, just like I did Children of Men. So. Yeah. Well, I didn't want didn't to be too predictable. Okay. So those are our films for next week in the horror category. Ted... Is there anywhere people can find your artwork? Yes. You can find my artwork at Ted Ryan Art at These Fine Times on Twitter. And you can see the podcast thumbnails for this podcast that you're listening to right now posted there. So if you'd like to see them in their full detail and glory, you can. Uh, as well as some schoolwork that I've posted recently. And see some artists and people that I follow. Cool. And as for me, I host two other podcasts. You got the Terry Talks podcast and Stories Worth Sharing. Hopefully by the release of this podcast, there will either be fresh content in either in both of those or soon to come episodes. So pretty excited about that. Ted, I really enjoyed talking about these two sci-fi movies with you this week. And I look forward to horror next week. As do I. Thank you for listening. Our intro song is Outro by Wolfpack. And we will see you next week. Bye.